Before we get started, I've asked uh, Tim to come up and hand out some outlines uh, for the sermon. Um, you'll notice at the end of the outline, there's a, a poem and a little story about a hymn. And at the very end of the sermon, um, there will be a 16th century hymn that we'll play. And that's the words in the story behind it, which I think are pretty powerful. And then secondly, uh, while the outlines are going around, um, I think most of you know that I'm struggling literally for my life with uh, stage four cancer and um, I'm undergoing chemotherapy. One of the side effects of the chemotherapy is I have a, a physical and an emotional inability to deal with confusion and noise. And um, so I want you to understand that if I would suddenly just stop talking and be quiet, I'm not mad, but I can't compete uh, with noise. And so if you hear me do that or see me do that, uh, please understand and help to quiet down whatever the cause of the noise might be so that I can, I can continue. It's not personal at all and I'm not angry. Thanks for understanding that. Let's pray together. Father, we've come to worship you, to learn from your word, and to grow in faith. So please meet us here, Lamb of God. Amen. The 23rd Psalm was written by a shepherd, David, and it begins with five powerful words. The Lord is my shepherd. If that's the case, it means we are sheep, the sheep of his pasture. I doubt that most of us would spend time thinking about the implications of being sheep, but we should because it could teach us a great deal both about ourselves and our God. What are sheep like anyway that we would be compared to them? Both scientists and shepherds describe sheep as having several distinctive traits. First, they're followers. They're dependent. They're passive. They have virtually no defenses. They have no shells or claws or fangs or barbs or odors. Even birds of prey can kill them. They're not highly intelligent. They become alarmed and agitated easily. When threatened, they scatter instead of fighting. And they quickly become lost without someone watching over them. That's not a very impressive profile, is it? Because of these traits, our image of sheep is not a positive one. We associate the word with stupid followers, weak and fearful and gullible people, mindless conformists. We even coined the word sheeple. To be sheepish is to be shy and embarrassed. So we hear it everywhere. Don't be like sheep. There's one exception. While we use the word sheep in a negative way, we consider lamb to be a term of endearment, especially when it's applied to young children who we think of as gentle and innocent. Perhaps this is why the Bible refers to Jesus as the lamb of God, but never the sheep of God. There's something else to understand about the life of sheep. There are three actors on the stage in their daily drama, the sheep themselves, the shepherd, and the predator. 
I hope the eternal significance of this fact will be clear by the end of the message. Would you turn the volume a little higher? I'm having trouble. Just a little, thanks. If it gets, if it echoes, then turn it back. That's okay. So let's look at sheep in Scripture. From the very beginning of God's Word to the very end of it, literally from Genesis to Revelation, we read of sheep and lambs and shepherds and flocks in literally hundreds of passages. There are literal references to literal sheep and analogies that describe sheep in symbolic terms. The literal passages place sheep in their earthly context, woolly animals grazing in fields, reminding us that sheep have been part of animal husbandry for thousands of years. So we read in Genesis 30 that Jacob separated spotted and speckled lambs. And we read in Chronicles 5, 1 Chronicles 5 about a flock of a quarter million sheep being carried off as plunder. But the symbolic passages are more familiar and probably more meaningful. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53. And I lay down my life for my sheep, John 10. It's no surprise that biblical authors would use sheep to illustrate their points so often or that sheep would figure into so many historical accounts of the nation of Israel since sheep were such a common sight in the culture of the region. Think of Minnesota and deer. But a deeper reason for the use is how profoundly the life of sheep describes the human condition. That's why God repeatedly referred to Israel in the Old Testament as a flock and their leaders as shepherds, and why Jesus did the same in describing us. So the first thing we need to understand is that we are sheep. Consider how well the analogy fits us by looking at specifically two traits that sheep have. First, they are vulnerable and weak because they lack defenses. They simply cannot take on their enemies in a fair fight. They're just a bundle of wool and flesh, and their predators are all fangs and claws. Does this remind you at all of what we face? Can we stand against our enemy, the devil, in our own strength? Are we skillful and shrewd enough to outmaneuver him in the deadly battle for our souls? The answer is no. As Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. In that case, the importance of protective cover, the human equivalent of a sheepfold, cannot be overstated. In the life of sheep, the fold is a straightforward enough place. It's a fenced-in area where the sheep stay when they're not grazing in the fields. The fold is not a romantic setting by any stretch. It's muddy and smelly and crowded, but it's safe. And for us, God has provided two types of folds. First, there is a spiritual shelter we have in a dangerous world. There are wars going on continuously around us that we cannot comprehend and in which we would be annihilated without God's protection. Think of the many images the Old Testament writers use to describe the safety of being protected by God. They say we are hidden in the cleft of the rock, Exodus 33. 
We are sheltered under his wings, Psalm 91. We are hidden in the hollow of his hand, Isaiah 49. He's put a hedge around us, Job 1. Being hedged in by God then, under his direct protection, is the only safe place in the universe. How could we dare go anywhere else? But the sheepfold is also a symbol of community. Again, something we do not want to wander away from. It's our home, the place where the shepherd is, the place where we are fed and cared for. In the fold, we have fellowship with others who are like us, who are part of our flock. The community then makes us complete and provides the setting where we can live and grow according to God's design. The sheepfold is, in this sense, ordained and institutionalized by God in two settings. First, the family or the Christian home, which is the first line of defense against the enemy. And beyond that, the church, the community of faith that both guards and nurtures our souls. That's why scripture places such emphasis on the family and the church in our lives. So what seems at first to be an inelegant place is actually quite beautiful and not to be missed at any cost because just outside that fence lurks all the danger and evil that Satan can throw at us. It is a kingdom of darkness, a place of raw fear and agony. Inside the fold we have sanctuary and rescue. Outside it we are on our own and very poorly equipped for survival. Absolutely everything that matters is separated by a simple fence, unmovable and eternal. The second trait we share with sheep is that we are prone to stray. Consider the history of Israel as seen in the Old Testament. Almost from the day they left Egypt and all the way through, all the way through to the destruction, all the way through to the destruction of Jerusalem, the Israelites refused to hold still and rest under the protection of the Lord of hosts. They questioned, they complained, they wandered, they rebelled, they refused to listen. But it wasn't just them. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah 53. Isaiah says, we all, like sheep, in verse 6, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Hebrew word for stray is shagah, to err, to stray. It appears several times in the Old Testament, especially in Psalm 119, where David prays that he would not stray from the statutes of God. And in Proverbs, where the writer prays, he will not wander into folly. These related dangers of leaving the law and entering into folly summarize precisely where straying leads us in every generation. I think the best image of what's going, going astray looks like is that of leaving a path or a trail, essentially going off course. Sometimes there are signs along the trail to warn us about such potentially foolish behavior, but usually not. We strike out on our own for many reasons, ranging from ignorance to curiosity to risk-taking to outright rebellion. 
Our wandering from God is, of course, a central and defining trait of our sinful nature, part of our fallen character. To stray also means to meander, to roam around without purpose, to be distracted. Sheep are, of course, a prime example of such behavior. And the key passage is here in Isaiah 53. But we need to know the context of that passage to understand how this description applies to us. Verse 6 does not say that we are sheep, nor does it say that all sheep stray, simply that they have that tendency. What it says is that all humans stray. A point made forcefully by Paul in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Earlier in the same chapter, the 53rd chapter, Isaiah described the sacrifice of Christ in taking up our pain and sufferings in verse 4, of being pierced for our sins, verse 5, and being assigned to the grave with the wicked, verse 9. So the purpose of this passage is not to describe stupid sheep. It's about sin and what Christ had to suffer in order to save us from eternal death. It's a clear and direct foretelling of his coming role as a lamb. Our second observation is this. Not only are we sheep, but we have a shepherd. If sheep hope to live and thrive, they need someone to guard them and care for them, or else they will die. It's as simple as that. So the second player enters the stage, the shepherd. As it turns out, shepherds don't have a very good reputation either. The adjective lowly or simple is often attached to that word. This is not an occupation that people respect or aspire to have. I did some research and discovered the job classification schemes include them in the groups called farm workers or animal caretakers, both of which are very near the bottom of the ranking system and just above street vendor and laborer. So the skill set for this line of work is apparently very modest. There's almost no initiative required and a low consequence of error. As a result, there is low prestige and low pay, which is the way of the world's economies. This reinforces the significance of Christ calling himself a shepherd. It's a mystery of the gospel that he described himself not as a king or a warrior, but as a farm worker. Who would ever be inspired to follow and serve a farm worker? Who indeed? And that's why the way to salvation is described by Jesus himself as a narrow road found by only a few, Matthew 7. But shepherds are significant in the biblical narrative. Apart from Mary and Joseph, who were physically present when Jesus was born, shepherds were the first humans to get the news of Christ's birth. And they didn't get it from a newspaper or a text message, but rather from a chorus of angels in the sky. If you ever pause to consider the deeper meaning of this singular event in history. I think God wanted these chosen men, these shepherds, before the rest of us, to know that another shepherd had just joined them. After all, the scriptures are full of literal realities being used 
to foreshadow eternal realities. Think of the tabernacle or the Old Testament worship rituals or the story of Joseph. I wonder if the shepherds themselves had any idea that they were symbols and shadows of salvation. Well, as with any occupation, there are good shepherds and bad shepherds. Some would say the difference is found in the shepherd's skill levels, things like their shearing ability or their herding ability, or perhaps other attributes like physical strength or perception or mobility. But I think the difference between good and bad shepherding is found primarily in the heart. If one approaches the job without heart, viewing sheep as things, as a necessary evil to a paycheck, the level of care will be minimal and unremarkable. Sheep will be tolerated, perhaps ignored, or at worst, abused. But the shepherd motivated by love will actively seek the welfare of the sheep, anticipating their needs, getting to know their individual differences, savoring their presence, taking risks for their protection. The contrast between good and bad is clearly described in Ezekiel 34. So please turn there if you have your scripture. Jerusalem has fallen and the prophet is condemning the leaders of Israel by comparing them to failed shepherds. Their approach to their work has been entirely selfish. They had slaughtered and eaten the best sheep. They clothed themselves with the best wool. They had, they had treated the sheep harshly, brutally, verse 4. They had not healed the sick sheep, nor had they gone to find those that had strayed. Consequently, the flock was now scattered, and God would hold the shepherds accountable, verse 10. But there's more. In contrast to these sinful and inept leaders, Ezekiel declared that God himself would become Israel's shepherd, searching for and rescuing those lost sheep and returning them to safe pasture. And his promise reassures us too. In verse 15 and 16, he says, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. The promise continues in verses 25 and 28. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts. I will bless them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. In John 10, Christ makes a similar comparison between good and bad shepherds, speaking of the hired hand who cares nothing for the sheep. Thus, when the wolf attacks, he abandons the flock and runs away. The good shepherd, on the other hand, literally lays down his life for his sheep, which is precisely what Jesus did in assuring our rescue from eternal punishment. Sometimes I try to imagine myself as a shepherd. For me, it would be both intimidating and uncomfortable. I cringe at the earthy aspects of the trade, of helping to birth a lamb, or giving first aid to a wounded sheep, getting muddy, being cold. I wonder if I could literally love my sheep 
it all seems so far-fetched. And then I think of Christ, who sees me in my abysmal condition of rebellion and sin, wandering, lost, unlovable, and yet he claims me as his own. There is no greater love. So what is it that a shepherd does for his sheep? And by implication, what Christ does for us. Let's look at two things. First, he has a rod and a staff with which he deals with us. These two words are different in the Hebrew, rod and staff. And the difference between them is important. The rod is essentially a short club that the shepherd would keep in the sash of his robe. It's used to protect the flock from predators and to correct the sheep when they need a change in behavior. In other words, the bottom. The staff or crook is a wooden stick that is hooked at one end. Herders have been using them for thousands of years because they're cheap, free, and they have so many useful purposes. The staff serves as a walking stick to help the shepherd navigate over rough terrain. It also can catch a wayward sheep since the hook is large enough to fit around the sheep's neck. And it can hold the sheep in one place whilst being shorn or treated for some physical ailment. Interestingly, the 23rd Psalm says, Thy rod and staff comfort me. In other words, like sheep lying beside still waters, we can be at peace because we know God is guiding and protecting us and even correcting us. We can all testify from personal experience that Christ the shepherd uses both rod and staff in our lives as he keeps us from danger, as he prods us to go a different direction, and even as he holds us down in what C.S. Lewis called severe mercy to shape us into his image. But as for the rod, we're not being punished by it because our punishment was removed forever at Calvary. Rather, we are being corrected by it. Recall what the Bible says about this. Proverbs 3, the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father his son. Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he chastises. So we should be careful not to resist the rod when it's present, but rather to receive instruction from it in order to better know God's will and be conformed into the image of Christ. Our lives should be so in tune with his will that like a circus lion seeing a whip, the mere sight of the rod will bring us to both attention and obedience. But the other function of the rod is our protection, which is usually described in Scripture with expressions that describe the strong hand of God or his outstretched arm. For example, we see this in Exodus 6. God says, I will deliver you from bondage and redeem you with my outstretched arm. We get the image of a physically strong person standing in the gap between us and danger, just what a shepherd would do in the field as a wolf approached. Our God defends, delivers, saves, and rescues us in our bodies, but more importantly, in our souls. In 1 Peter 2, we read, You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer or guardian of your soul. Frankly, I think we're completely unaware of most of the times that God protects us. He does so by his angels, 
by turns of events in our lives and by spiritual warfare in the heavens. Returning again to the 23rd Psalm, because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, I have everything I need and I will fear no evil. All I have to do is rest in his protection. The second characteristic of the shepherd is he has a heart. Like the good shepherd we talked about earlier. This means some special things for us. It means, first of all, that he cares for us. Have you seen one of the classic paintings that depict Christ carrying a lamb over his shoulders or in his arms? Christ cares for us in the same way. It's described in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. There are two different Greek words used in this short phrase. Care in the first sense is the same as anxiety, and we are invited to throw it on him. He does this because of his care in the second sense, his affection, his attention, his concern. And can there be a more moving description than what we find in Isaiah 40, verse 11? He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. And he gently leads those who have young. The most significant part of that shepherd care is, of course, that he laid down his life for us. It's difficult to imagine an ordinary shepherd, even a good one, voluntarily dying for his sheep. For one thing, his death would spell doom for the flock since they would be left unprotected. For another, with a job so disrespected and poorly paid, what would be the shepherd's incentive for such a sacrificial and heroic act? Is there a national monument for martyr shepherds somewhere or an annual award ceremony? Perhaps the shepherd is simply fighting for self-survival when he dies in the job. After all, the cougar or wolf considers humans to be a menu item too. This makes the contrast between human shepherds and Christ all the more incomprehensible, an act of unmerited grace. No wonder the angels sang to the shepherds on that cold night near Bethlehem. Also, our shepherd seeks us when we stray. C.S. Lewis referred to God as the hound of heaven, which may sound sacrilegious at first, but actually describes how God pursues us persistently, relentlessly, when we leave his side and turn our face to other gods and idols. I love the image of him always being just one step behind us, no matter how far we've wandered, and regardless of how many years we've been on the run. All we have to do is turn around and he is literally right there. Indeed, he was there all the time. The parable of the lost sheep, which is told by Jesus in Matthew 18 and Luke 15, is an enduring story to anyone who has a loved one who has left the faith. In my childhood home, we had a painting of Christ pursuing an injured lamb at the edge of a steep cliff, reaching out to rescue it from danger. And why does he pursue us? Why does he pursue the lost when we leave the safety of his side and wander away into dark places? The answer is simple, because he's a loving shepherd, and that's what loving shepherds do. Much like sheep, I think most of those who have left the faith 
just gradually drifted away, not paying attention to the dangers, simply not thinking, not trying to stay close to the fold. Outright rebellion is not the typical path into the wilderness. Sheep don't intentionally wander off to aggravate the shepherd, and we don't either. But there's an unmistakable slope in life, and it always falls away from the shepherd, not toward him. As Matthew Henry put it, we are bent to backslide and then unable to find our way back to the path. The process goes like this. Neglect creates doubt. Temptation leads into sin. The seemingly harmless becomes harmful and ultimately deadly. And we find ourselves far from safety, lost in trouble, unequipped to stand against the enemy. While this may not necessarily trouble us, it certainly troubles our shepherd. And like the prodigal son of Luke 15, we are eventually confronted with both how far we strayed and how perilous our situation really is. Wandering sheep are, of course, a normal aspect of the daily life of a shepherd. So I doubt the typical shepherd would experience inexpressible joy upon finding a simple sheep that was in trouble. Yet why would Jesus say, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep? Parents and loved ones certainly understand why, because they love that lost one and have ached for its return. And God the loving Father feels the same kind of joy as he runs down the lane to greet the wayward child returning home. Jesus said there is rejoicing in heaven over even one sinner who repents and is restored. The words of a 19th century hymn capture this passage in a powerful way. As you hear this poem, remember that it could very well describe you. It's called the 90 and 9. There were 90 and 9 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but one was out on the hills, away, far off from the gates of gold, away on the mountains, wild and bare, away from the shepherd's tender care. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd answered, This one of mine has wandered away from me, and although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. Out in the desert he heard its cry, sick and helpless and ready to die. Lord, what are those blood drops all the way that mark out the mountain's track? They were shed for one who had gone astray ere the shepherd could bring him back. Lord, why are thy hands so rent and torn? They were pierced tonight by many a storm. And all through the mountains, thunder-riven, and up from the rocky steep, there rose a cry to the gate of heaven, Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice, 
for the Lord brings back his own. Amen. One final observation. We are sheep, we have a shepherd, and now it gets interesting. We also know that our shepherd is a lamb. Christ is described in Scripture not just a shepherd, but a lamb, not only the protector of the flock, but a member of it. The Scriptures are full of references to Christ as a lamb. Isaiah said Jesus was led like a lamb to the shearer. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God. And Peter described Christ as a lamb without blemish or defect. And what's the significance of this? It means that as a lamb, Christ is one of us. This, of course, had to be the case. He had to become human or else his atonement would not have been sufficient. So we read in Philippians 2 that Christ was made human in human likeness in the appearance of a man. And in Hebrews 2, he shared our humanity, being fully human in every way. He was tempted like us. He suffered like us. Because he shared our earthly existence, he is now our perfect high priest. We can approach him with confidence because he truly understands our condition. To say it again, he is one of us. So his role as a lamb is twofold. First, he died for us. Recall the Passover in Exodus 12. When God freed the Israelites from four centuries of slavery, he did so through the blood of lambs. He passed over homes whose doorways had been sprinkled in blood, thereby sparing them from the judgment pronounced on the firstborn of every Egypt household. It takes little imagination to see what's at work here. God could have told his people to use the blood of doves or bulls or any other ceremonial clean creature, but he chose the lamb. A lamb was sacrificed at each home, and with the blood of that lamb, those inside were saved from death, they were freed from captivity, and led to the promised land. And so are we. This parallel was not lost on the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 5, he referred to Christ as our Passover lamb. And did you know that Christ was crucified during the Passover season? The lamb then was slaughtered twice, once in Egypt as a foreshadow, and once more at Calvary as full atonement for our sin. Finally, as a lamb, we know that he is coming for us. There will be two phases to Christ's return. Judgment comes first, and we immediately think of the sheep and the goats being separated by the shepherd, a process foretold by Jesus in Matthew 25. But what is it with goats? Why are they linked with sin as scapegoats and with those who are destined for hell? Actually, Scripture is kinder to goats than we may think. They were, after all, just another common herd animal in biblical times. Goats were created by God and declared to be good. They were rescued from the flood by Noah. God instructed Abram to sacrifice them when he made his covenant in Genesis 15. So how could they be unacceptable? Both sheep and goats are part of the flock in the Old Testament, 
either species could be sacrificed. Indeed, the goat was even considered to be an acceptable alternative to the lamb at that very first Passover in Egypt, Exodus 12.5. And in Isaiah's, Isaiah's vision, goats are lying down with leopards as part of the restored creation, Isaiah 11. So there's nothing evil in these modest creatures. In the end, the analogy of goats and sheep is one that anybody would understand easily in biblical times. Jesus used other analogies too, like separating wheat from chaff, or fishermen separating good fish from bad fish. The point is simple. Eventually, good and evil will be separated because they may, while they may be hopelessly entwined in this world, they cannot coexist in the world to come. And after judgment, the new heaven and new earth. When I began this message, I said there were three actors on the stage in the life of sheep, the sheep themselves, the shepherd, and the predator. Hopefully by now it's plain that Christ himself fulfills the first two roles. He came to earth to die as a sacrificial lamb. While he was on earth, and of course ever since then, he's been a shepherd. But what about the role of predator? That's of course Satan himself the one who was the mastermind of our descent into the curse of sin. And who is his prey? To say the obvious again, we are. Speaking of predators, Christ himself is described as a predator too. In Revelation 5, 4-5, it's the only time in Scripture that Christ is referred to as a lion. And it says this, John is talking, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The reference here is to a document containing a description of the end of history. But even here, the physical form in which Christ appears to open that scroll is not as a lion, but as a butchered lamb, in verse 6. And later in that passage, the elders do not bow down before him and say, worthy is a lion, worthy is the lawyer, the warrior, or even worthy is the shepherd. Rather, they say, worthy is the lamb. Even the book of life, so important on the day of judgment, is described as belonging not to a lion, but to a lamb, Revelation 21. So the book of Revelation is where the image of Christ the Lamb, crucified and risen again, takes center stage in the great narrative of history. John begins by saying, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, chapter 5. Later he says the redeemed follow the lamb wherever he goes, chapter 14. The lamb will overcome the beast because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. Chapter 17, the victory celebration of Christ and his church is described as the wedding supper of the Lamb, verse 19. And the new Jerusalem does not need the sun or moon because the Lamb is its light, chapter 21. The Moravian church is the oldest of all Protestant denominations. Long ago it adopted as its symbol a lamb with scars carrying a flag of victory and wearing a crown. 
with Latin words on it that translate to say this, Our Lamb has conquered. Let us follow Him. Christ as a Lamb is deserving of eternal praise because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the reason why we follow Christ, because he's conquered the world and his sacrifice has set us free. In closing, let's step back and revisit a simple question. Why? Of all the ways Christ could have described himself and his role in our salvation, as well as his coming at the end of time, why did he pick lowly shepherds and defenseless sheep? For that matter, why a manger for a bed? Why an unmarried commoner for a mother? Why did he come into the home of a poor carpenter instead of a military commander or a king? Why did he wander from village to village instead of building a palace in his hometown? Why did he ride a borrowed donkey into Jerusalem instead of a war horse? These tactics seemed to be almost a taunt to his onlookers. Paul states the answer clearly in his letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are forced then to make a choice. We cannot look smart to those around us when we accept the message of salvation. Instead, we will only look foolish. Faith in Christ is not the pathway to respect in a sinful world. It's a humbling experience in human terms. But Christ humbled himself too, Philippians 2. And he went first. So we choose to identify ourselves with the weak and the foolish and the lowly. Not kings and armies, but sheep and shepherds. And in the end, the Lamb of God calls us blessed. There's perhaps no richer sheep passage in all of Scripture than the words spoken by Jesus himself in the 10th chapter of John, which Mark read to us a few minutes ago. And there are several messages that lessons that emerge from that, and I'll close with these messages. The first lesson is this. He knows us. He knows us, and we know him. Look at verses 2 to 4. So you see that the shepherd calls his own sheep by name, and his sheep recognize his voice. For most of us, the thought of Christ calling us by name is incomprehensible. Imagine you're in the kitchen or the workshop one day, lost in thought, doing a project, when a single word is spoken quietly from behind you. Sarah. Timothy. Daniel. Jerry Ann. It's personal with God. God loves us and is jealous for our affection. He's a personal savior. Several years ago, a computer software company ran an advertisement on television. Perhaps you'll remember this. There was a desk in the middle of a field of sheep with several people sitting around it 
talking simultaneously, apparently arguing over some kind of glitch in the textile supply chain. A woman from the software company is trying to sort everything out. She asks each one to identify themselves with the words, who are you? One says, I'm in shipping. Another responds, I'm in sales. Another says, I'm in public relations. Finally, she, re she turns to an old man standing off to the side who's not a part of the conversation. And she says, and who are you? He replies, She replies, I'm the shepherd. Instantly, all the sheep turn their faces toward him. I don't know how, how many software sales that advertisement generated, but my heart leaped within me as I imagined Christ calling my name. And in that instant, my spirit recognizing its shepherd. second lesson from John 10 is this. He leads us out. Verse 4. This is the essence of shepherding. He leads the sheep from the fold to the pasture and back home again. He's not merely observing their movement passively. He doesn't just point his finger in the direction he wants them to go or tell them which field to graze in. Instead, he goes first, leading by example showing the way so the sheep can follow. And we do follow because we trust him. Time after time, God has led us through valleys or out of harm's way or beside quiet waters or into paths of blessing and growth. He has proven to be trustworthy. As the 19th century hymn says, all the way my shepherd leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? And then finally, he gives us fullness in this life. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. John 10.10 In a real sense, any shepherd provides a full life for his sheep. By offering physical protection, the sheep can live out their lifespan into old age. By caring for their infirmities, he heals them and frees them from pain. In finding good pasture for them, the sheep can receive the nourishment they need. In providing shelter, the sheep can escape the miseries of lightning and hail and bitter cold. The absence of a shepherd would be disastrous for all these reasons, whereas his presence ensures a full and a safe life. Like David, the sheep can say, I have a shepherd, therefore I have everything I need. And yet the fullness of life we find in Christ is so much deeper. He does everything any good shepherd would do to ensure our well-being and more. He gives us purpose and joy. He comforts us. He listens to us. He instructs us. He freely gives us good things. He gives us security from all our foes, and nobody can take us out of his hand. And on top of all this, he gives us eternal life. Verses 28 to 29. Here is a clear and simple application to all of this. 
We need to own our identity. It's true that we were created a little lower than the angels, made to be beautiful, and made to have dominion over all living things. But we gave it all away with two bites of an apple. Since that moment, we've been steeped in sin, and our lives have been cursed with toil and tears and pain and death. The glory of our created nature is almost completely gone. We are now sheep. We are not in control. We're vulnerable. We wander off continually. Without the shepherd, we would die. Without the lamb who joined our flock for a brief season 20 centuries ago, we'd be lost forever. Let's pray. Glory to you, Lamb of God. You are our shepherd, so we have everything we need. You lead us to green pastures beside quiet waters where we are nourished and at peace. You guide us along every path, even the one that leads through the valley of death. We have no fear. We are comforted by your rod of protection and your staff of direction. You give us good things right in the front of our enemies. Our blessings overflow our cup. You lead us in goodness and love, and we will live with you forever. Amen.